0: recorded live remember that there is only one mediator between god and man that there is but one sacrifice for sins offered once for all and forever through the one mediator by the one sacrifice draw nigh to god and he will draw nigh to you you need no mediator between yourself and christ 1 Timothy two, five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The priest is a false intruder there. Jesus calls you to come to himself. He is both human and divine. He is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, yet without sin. God is in him. He is one with us and one with God. Suffer nothing to come between your soul and him. Suffer no saint, no angel, no virgin, no priest to come between you and Jesus Christ. Go to him for the pardon of all your sins. Make to him your confessions. He can absolve you. And will, yea, does. And will, yea, does if you truly believe in him. Priestly absolution is a lie, it is a blasphemous pretense. The sentence I absolve thee, whether from the mouth of Romish priests or Protestant ministers, is profane. Be not deluded by it. Your fellow sinner cannot absolve you from the sins you have committed against God turn from these idols and vanities Jesus is all you need his blood is sufficient to atone and cleanses those who simply trust in him from all sin search the scriptures they testify of him come to him that you may have life his heart is touched with the feeling of our infirmities None can sympathize as he can. None can help as he. To you, to each one, he says, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Thou alone art all we need, for thou alone art all in all. I'd like to welcome you, everybody, to uh, another edition of Truth Be Told. And I just want to apologize for my absence last week. Um, and uh, that was just really, really busy. Um, but we are going to continue from where we left off two weeks ago. And when we started off two weeks ago, we basically laid the groundwork of this aspect of reason. Okay? And reason... Is was basically the push of this secular humanism, if you will. Or, I guess in another way to put it, tolerance for all. And this tolerance for all was the backbone of 1776. Okay. So what started back in the time of Napoleon, especially with General Berthier when he took the Papal States captive and all political, temporal rulership was done away with, Um, what happened was in came this tolerance, this aspect of um, human reason um, in these types of things. You know, because we had the Declaration of Independence, and we had the French Revolution, and these types of things. So, what is behind this whole thing of reason? And there's one text I want to keep. I want you to keep in mind in Scripture throughout this entire broadcast tonight, and that is in Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, verse 27. To talk about the kings of the north and kings of the south. Now, typologically. When you look at the aspect of the King of the North and the King of the South, the true, the very true King of the North is Jesus Christ. Okay, there is a counterfeit King of the North today. Daniel eleven is a brief scope through history of the literal King of the North and the literal King of the South, transpiring into uh, Rome, and then typologically, spiritually speaking, or figuratively. The king of the north is basically represented by the papacy, and the king of the south is basically this secular reason, this uh, tolerance and democracy, which basically sprouted all over from the time of Napoleon and these types of things establishing religious tolerance that way no religion can be above another and these types of things, the the Humanist Manifesto of, of, of uh, Human Rights, and these types of things. All of this stemmed from Napoleon and Napoleon's conquering of the papal states. And this is why this is really considered the deadly wound, if you will, of the papacy. Now, there were some... Uh, hiccups here and there where they may have gotten a little bit of control, but it never regained full political status. It never regained full temporal ruler, rulership. And Daniel 11.27 says something very interesting between these ideas of the king of the north and the king of the south. And Daniel 11.27 reads this, and both these kings, king of the north, king of the south, hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. But it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Here we have in the Bible the definition of the Hegelian dialectic principle. Here we have it, right here. So, even though there was a mortal wound established by the papacy in 1798, and it you know, it had little hiccups here and there, but it was established in 1798. It was completed um, basically roughly in like the mid-1800s, I would have to say, and then once the Jesuits were reestablished, brought back into Rome and then basically this, the process started to heal this wound. So even though Rome lost its temporal power, they still had their orders throughout all the world dictating things, okay? Through England through France and these types of things, even though the papacy was suffered a political wound. So basically, what happens is you had all of this, he um, had all of these ideas of prophecy, pinpointing the papacy as the Antichrist. And then all of a sudden, he's done away with it. Where'd he go? And so he basically dives underground through this mortal wound, and a new form of Government comes along, a democracy, if you will. And this democracy laid the groundwork for religious tolerance. And what religious tolerance does is it intermingles idolatry with holy things. It intermingles the holy with the profane. We talked about in the last broadcast um, how the um, the structure, if you will, of religious tolerance was not Protestant was not a Protestant principle. There wasn't no Protestant principles in the Declaration of Independence because Washington himself declared in his Treaty of Tripoli that. America was in no-wise founded on the Christian religion, but it was founded on enlightenment. It was founded on reason. It was founded on religious tolerance. So what history books have done today is they made, at that time, prior to 1776, Protestant England be the bad guy. But in reality what really happened was to was a revolution in order to bring about reason in order to open the door for any religious institution to come in and so what happened you had freemasons you had masonry come out in the open and basically admit everything what they're about you know a lot of people you know you had basically all of these cults and stuff just sprout forth ever since this religious tolerance came into play here in the US where prior to that you know the the thirteen colonies here in America were Protestant in nature, all right? And this revolution was not a popular revolution. By Protestant it was not popular at all. Because they knew what was at stake here. So we hear these things about free speech, freedom of speech, and these types of things and freedom of the press and I get that there are some good um, principles in this constitution you know to You know the ability to freely express your mind freedom of speech and these types of things even though these freedoms are are being taken away which also isn't by design because these freedoms were instituted in so doing so that they would later be taken away because once you open the door like the old phrase goes you give the devil an inch he'll take a mile they gave the devil an inch and he has taken the whole lot The whole lot in the essence that comes September 23rd, you're going to see that. When the Caesar or Antichrist will address joint sessions of Congress in September. <clears throat> but if we held to the principles prior to the American Revolution, this would not have even been tolerated. So what really the establishment of religious freedom has done was it has incorporated not only Protestants, but everybody, all religions, all religions are equal. We're all equal. <clears throat> so when you hear about this equality, this is the equality that is going on in the world today, and you hear these Christian politicians talking about religious freedom, Then, under oath, by that own constitution, in Article One, they are in error because they want a Christian nation through political means, but they aren't willing to accept other religions. So, therefore, by their own mouths, they are hypocrites. Okay. So we have a lot of these uh, patriotic Christians and these types of things, and say, oh Washington was a Christian man and John Adams was a Christian man and he started, and nothing can be further from the truth I'm not demonizing these people but facts are facts okay people will always point out and lay, lay the obvious that George Washington was a Freemason but then other people who defend George Washington will sit there and say well Freemasonry was different prior to 1776. Freemasonry was a a holy institution. No, it wasn't a holy institution. It has always been unholy from the very beginning. It has, it has always been unholy from the very founding. It's just through the aspect of this Declaration of Independence, of the establishment of religious tolerance, is where Freemasonry was able to come out into the open and basically share the things that they are able to share now, where prior to the Revolution, they were not able to do it. It's the same thing with the Jesuits who basically control Masonry behind the scenes. Again, both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. And so, what was this Declaration of Independence? We're going to read a couple of we're going to read an article from um, Grand Design Exposed, okay? And it's entitled "The Two Missing Leans." And bear in mind, I shared Daniel eleven twenty seven. But bear in mind, I want you to look at the aspect of the horn, of the two-horned beast that rises up out of the earth, okay? This two-horned beast that rises up out of the earth, which had two horns like a lamb and a spake as a dragon. So at this beast rising, sure, it has lamb-like principles intermingled in it but it speaks like a dragon from the very beginning. And who, and then how does the dragon speak? All you got to do is look at the first beast. And the first beast out of the sea is the papal power, Rome, okay? And the dragon, which is Satan and the devil, the serpent, gave the first beast its power and great authority. So... If the second beast speaks like a dragon, in order to have the pendulum start swinging the other way, who is going to be acting as the supreme authority on this world? Even though they themselves have their own master that they they follow, and that's the beast out of the sea. The answer, the simple answer to that is the United States of America, the American government. Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this article entitled The Two Missing Links to the Founding of America of America. And the one is the Royal Declaration, which stems from England. And number two is the Glorious Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. Okay, and even Catholics' own encyclopedia will admit this. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm not sure, this is probably not going to be an extremely long broadcast, but um, hopefully with this, we can lay the groundwork. And then you can see this enlightenment, how this enlightenment Paved the way and opened the door for Jesuitical influence to come in and totally run amok. Okay? So let's go ahead and get started. Understand there has been only one country, meaning the government, that has been truly Protestant. The two missing links, which is the Royal Declaration. And the glorious revolution have been covered up and buried from the protestant world england is the only country that has ever legislated catholicism illegal it's the only one in america it became legal in parentheses the mass what was illegal which was the mass in england was freedom of religion so what freedom of religion did was it established religious freedom so that regardless of what religion you practice, you can practice it here in America. Tolerance for all means tolerance for Rome. The American Revolution was not about teeing taxes. It was about religion. Mellon Chamberlain, in an address before the Webster Historical Society in Boston, January 18, 1884, on John John Adams, a statesman of the American Revolution, said, quote, Perhaps the prime cause without which the revolution would never have begun when it did and where it did was ecclesiastical rather than political, end quote. The American Revolution was to separate us from Protestant England and to make legal the mass, which was illegal, the mass in England. Now fast forward to 2012. 28 Jesuit universities, over 200 Catholic universities, and six out of the nine Supreme Court justices are Catholic. You might say they have been very successful since 1776. Prior to 1776, it was illegal for Catholics to hold office. And another thing I want to point out is even the founding fathers, when you look at quotes about how they view the Jesuits and these types of things, how, you know, you know you'll know, you see um, like John Adams, who basically states, I do not like the resurgence of the Jesuits. you know, I'm, I'm not speaking word for word, but he said that somewhere... Along the lines. Now, when you look at that, you got to think. Well, if this was illegal, if the mass was illegal here in the colonies prior to 1776, and then after 1776, why are all these fathers talking about this Jesuit influence when this was supposed to be a free country? Okay. Prior to 1776, it was illegal for Catholics to hold office. I think history is really interesting. History tells us that America, don't forget South America, was named after Vespucci Amerigo, an Italian explorer that just happened to be a Catholic. The capital of America, the District of Columbia, which, by the way, when you actually look at the District of Columbia, it's actually its own nation. It's actually its own nation. It has its own constitution, rather. It's not part of the 50 states. All right. So when I make the claim that this government spoke like a dragon from the very beginning, even though this whole kingdom here in the Americas, in North America, was had lamb-like principles attached with it, doesn't change the fact that this government was speaking like a dragon from the very beginning. And you can look at the Article of Tripoli. You can actually look at the context of the Declaration of Independence and the Article of the Constitution in and of itself. And also, one other thing you have to make mention is who is this God that is over and over again mentioned, number one, on the back of a dollar bill, and number two, that is mentioned over and over again here within the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Jesus Christ was never once mentioned within the Declaration of Independence. So that right there has got to make you think, at least I would hope it does. The capital of America, the District of Columbia, is named after another Catholic explorer, Christopher Columbus, and the White House is named after a Jesuit, Andrew White then daniel carroll which is catholic gives the land for our national capital then after 26 years of jesuit education john carroll who was catholic was founded georgetown who founded georgetown university in 1789. the same year we became a country we can't forget charles carroll catholic the wealthiest man in the colonies being the commissioner of war during the revolutionary war and the first mayor of the district of columbia carroll's nephew robert brent a catholic That is really interesting how the Catholic pieces fit, and it seems there are no Protestant pieces to the puzzle. What part of the Constitution protests Rome? Bear in mind, this Georgetown University was founded in 1789. So did the Jesuits know that there was going to be a temporal political wound to the papacy just nine years later? I think they had a very good idea, and so this is why they actually started going in and changing the scope of things here in America. Again, Daniel 1127 They speak lies at one table. both these kings, the king of the North and the king of the South. Now we have to look at mindsets, okay? We have to look at mindsets. The King of the South mindset was to come in and establish freedom for all, equality, based on reason, and the Bill of Rights, the you know, human rights and these types of things, which actually if you look at the human, human, humanistic manifesto of human rights, from the French Revolution, you will see that it's actually kind of shaped in the same form of the Ten Commandments with fascist symbols pinned between them. Okay, which is a very, very interesting piece of symbolism there if you really dive into it. And um, and so what this did was this this King of the South mentality pushed at the King of the North and established this religious freedom. Now, what if you can eventually lead this freedom into chaos and cause a pendulum to swing the other way, therefore allowing a new form of government to come along in order to dictate into the minds of men to bow and worship the first beast through the aspect of an image of the first beast? I think this is exactly what's the case. I think this is exactly what the strategy was. We can't forget Charles Carroll, who was Catholic, which was the wealthiest man in the colonies, being the commissioner of war during the Revolutionary War, and the first mayor of the District of Columbia. Carroll's nephew, Robert Brent, a Catholic, that is really interesting how the Catholic pieces fit, and it seems there are no protestant pieces to the puzzle. What part of the Constitution protests Rome? Below is a preface to "Quote Washington in the Lap of Rome" by Justin D. Fulton. This book was written in 1888. The Jesuits founded this country, and Rome had a stranglehold already by 1888. Again, the American Revolution was not about tea and taxes; it was about religion. And here's a preface from "Washington in the Lap of Rome" by Justin D. Fulton. Going to read the preface here, and you can actually download this book on the internet for free. Who knows how long it's going to be? And how long? How much longer it's going to be available? So I'm pretty sure they want to kind of get rid of all this, get rid of all the evidence they can, you know. But maybe it's from divine intervention that this stuff remains free to download. And also the aspect of these websites like Grand Design Exposed, and I, and I see, he's Oh, he's actually listening. <laughs> um, who is able to? Put this information out there through the protection of God and Jesus Christ. Because, you know, man can do anything. They can lay all kinds of laws and these types of things. But if God has his hand in it, trust me, these things won't be shut down or it'll be very hard to. Washington and the Laparome have been written to call attention of the American people to the great trust which has been betrayed and to the great work which devolves upon them. It uncovers facts which will bring the blush of shame to the check of the real Republican and fill his soul with indignation. 15,000 department clerks are under the surveillance of Rome. If it be not true, as is charged, that a private wire runs from the White House in Washington to the Cardinal's Palace in Baltimore, and an every important question touching the interests of Romanism in America is placed before his eye before it becomes a public act, it is true that the Cardinal is a factor in politics. Romanism is the dominant power. This is written in 1888 in the capital of the United States. Lincoln, Grant, and Arthur withstood it and suffered the consequences. The power is unseen. It is shadowy. It inhabits the air and infects it. Romanism is the malaria of the the spiritual world. It stupefies the brain, deadens the heart, it sears the conscience as with a hot iron. It comes as it did the tempter, with gifts in its hand, a rule of power and of wealth to all who will fall down and worship it. They who yield have peace and praise. They who refuse must fight a terrible foe. You're either with us or against us. Isn't that funny that George Bush, you know, in the, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 kind of said the same thing. You're either with the terrorists or you're against us. Let me kind of rephrase that. You're either with us or you're dead. That's basically the that's basically the line. What side of the line do you stand on? The cry has been for peace. The lips of some of the ministers and members of the Church of Christ have been padlocked. Politicians in the grasp of this power are unable or unwilling to move. They clank their chains with delight and glory in being allied with an organism so potential and so astute Others see the peril and withstand its open and determined advance. No longer now is a clash of arms heard. The city is not, to human sight, a camp of armed men. As in the days of civil war, but if eyes would be open as were those of the prophet's servant, when horses and chariots were circling in the air, proofs of a conflict might now be discerned, more desperate than ever fought by flesh and blood on the earth. Now, circling in the air... um, I'll, you know that is kinda of interesting because if you look at Eusebius' account of the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy AD and how witnesses noticed certain witnesses who noticed warnings to flee Jerusalem notice certain things happening, um, like chariots of armed guards circling the temple, you know, in midair, and these types of things saw visions and these types of things warning the followers of Christ as time to flee. Okay. So I don't know if, he, if that's where he got that from, but it's very interesting he said that. Proofs of a conflict might now be discerned, more desperate than was ever fought by flesh and blood on the earth. Today the city of magnificent distances resembles a child in the presence of the snake, and is being charmed by the viper. Duty demands that the truth be told, which shall break the back of the monster. Why priests should wed, uncovered the pollutions of Romanism in the hope of saving the women and girls of the Roman Catholic Church now held in the grasp of superstition. Washington in the lap of Rome appeals to mankind the surrender to Rome of the capital of the Great Republic means death to liberty. The people of all lands climes are, in, are interested in the conflict. The facts given will ripen the indignation of pure-minded men and women against a Jesuitical foal, foe who no longer creeps cover or hides in the shadow of some wall but stalks boldly forth on his errand of wickedness. Again, 28 Jesuit universities in 2012. It is believed that it will cause lovers of liberty to shake themselves from their lethargy and not only take Washington out of the lap of Rome, but throttle the monster threatening the future of the Republic. And lift the nation to its rightful place as the educator of mankind, the leader of the best thought and the personification of God's great purpose and placing within the area of an ocean-washed republic a free church and a free state. May God help the truth is a prayer of Justin D. Fulton. And yes, may God help the truth, but also we have to remember that prophecy will be fulfilled and there's nothing you or I can do about it, okay? I just want to make that one thing clear. We're not going to go guns blazing. We're not called to go guns blazing and go after the beast with guns and weapons in hand, and these types of things. But what we can do is we can inform and we can teach so that those that are spiritually honest can discern these things, that they can learn from it, and then so that they can go forth and sprout this information to others. Now, how have they kept the world ignorant to this history? Here's a quote from uh, Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States by Samuel Morris, 1835. The food of popery is ignorance. Ignorance is the mother of papal devotion. Ignorance is the legitimate prey of popery. Ignorance, the condition of being uneducated, unaware, or uninformed. Too many history might be dry and boring, yet if we have a burning desire to understand what is truth, then history becomes vibrant and alive. History sheds light on our present world and also gives understanding for the future. It is through history that we find our roots and has become the reason and object of why much of our history today has been thoroughly censored so that our roots will be purposely obscured. The day is approaching, perhaps, when the only historians will be amateurs who study history as self-help who examine the past in order to make sense of the present? Because you ain't gonna get it in the public school system and not be caught unprepared by the future. You ain't gonna get this out of the public school system. You ain't gonna get this out of the colleges. Okay. You're gonna get this by doing your own research, by looking up the stuff on your, you know, by yourself, and exploring what has happened in recent times and past times. Lopsided, slanted, and gone from history are the true factual events purposely hidden from history when a nation has no true past history. The minds are molded by false history. False history makes a present fiction without any way to understand the future. This will allow you to believe in something that never existed. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So who controlled the dark ages? Who controls the present? Past the first question answers the second question. So who controlled the Dark Ages? It was Rome through their Inquisitions. It was Rome through the their their uh, control through the states, through other nations, through kings and queens and princes and these types of things. Who controlled the aspect of Inquisitions and stuff like that? It was Rome that controlled the Dark Ages. It was Rome that controlled the Dark Ages. By censoring the Bible, where it was only the priests that were able to read from the pulpits and to base, and they spoke in a dead language to where no one could understand it. And that was really that's really the context of why the phrase Dark Ages was coined. But that's who controlled the dark ages. Now who controls the present? The first question answers the second. In this world, it really does not matter what your personal religious beliefs are, but what has happened in the world today has everything to do with Lucifer Sun worship. It does not matter if you believe in Lucifer Sun worship or not. If the people who believe in Roman Catholicism, which is Lucifer's Sun worship, are in government, this will most assuredly affect you. Understand this is being written from a Roman point of view. This comes out of the Catholic Encyclopedia, and it's entitled the Royal Declaration. So here we're going to see what this Royal Declaration was. Okay? Okay, now, this is the, so, I'm, okay, I'm reading this section of the Royal Declaration. This is the name most commonly given to the solemn repudiation of, Catholic, of Catholicity, which, in accordance with provision of the Bill of Rights, 1689, and of the Act of Secession, 1700, Every sovereign seceding to the throne of Great Britain was, until, until quite recently, required to make in the presence of the assembled lords and commons. This, pronounce, this pronouncement has also often been called the King's Protestant Declaration or the Declaration Against Transubstantiation and, but quite incorrectly, the Coronation Oath. With regard to this last term, it is important to notice that the later coronation oath, which for two centuries has formed part of the coronation service and which still remains unchanged, consists only of certain promises to govern justly and to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion established by law. No serious exception has ever been taken by Catholics to this particular formula, but the Royal Declaration, on the other hand, was regarded for long years as a substantial grievance constituting, as it did, an insult to the faith professed by many millions of loyal subjects of the British of the British crown. The terms of this declaration, which from sixteen eighty nine to nineteen ten was imposed upon the sovereign by statute, ran as follows. <clears throat> and he's got a he's got a uh, a please note section here that the Oath and Black Text below is quoted from the Catholic Encyclopedia on the Internet, and the Oath in Dark Brown is from the 1912 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia. Please note what they left out. Here's a perfect example of perverting history. Also, it is called rewriting history. Notice when they left out in the new version of the encyclopedia, when the Royal Declaration is read in its entirety, it again tells us a part of history that has been omitted from our American history books. In America, it became legal what was illegal in England with freedom of religion the American Revolution was not about paying taxes it was about religion the American Revolution gave Rome the Liberty to say mass and gave Rome freedom of religion that is what the fourth of July is all about remember prior to 1776 the mass was illegal what did the Protestants gain in the American Revolution and what did they lose keep this in mind when you read that royal declaration understand this is just history before 1776. okay so this is the internet catholic encyclopedia all right this is what states in the in the internet catholic encyclopedia quote i a b by the grace of god king or queen of england scotland and ireland defender of the faith Be solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I do believe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper there is not any transubstantiation of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever, and that the invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any other saint and the sacrifice of the Mass as they are now used in the Church of Rome are superstitious and idolatrous. And I do solemnly in the presence of God profess, testify, and declare that I do make this declaration and every part thereof, in the plain and ordinary sense of the words, read, read unto me, as they are commonly understood by English Protestants, without any such dispensation from any person or authority or person whatsoever, or without thinking that I am or can be acquitted before God or man, or absolved of this declaration, or any part thereof, although the Pope Or any other person or persons or power whatsoever should dispense with or annul the same or declare that it was null and void from the beginning. Okay. Now, in the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia, there's kind of a very interesting thing that has happened between the Internet version and the 1912 version, there are certain words that were left out and that were included. In the 1912 version okay but as you can see this Royal Declaration was totally against transubstantiation no king or queen that were that was assembling that that was stepping up to take the crown was allowed to take the crown if he or she were Catholic if he or she practiced a superstitious and idolatrous religion And this was the backbone of the colonies in America. And so what did the American Revolution do? It yanked that backbone out, replaced it with a new backbone. And so for for over 200 years now, we pretty much got so-called Protestants without backbones. They got a new backbone, but it's not the same backbone. (laughs) That's just a very simple way of putting it. But the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia says something very interesting, which basically says the same thing in the first paragraph. I, A, B, by the grace of God, king or queen of England, Scotland and Ireland, defender of the faith, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I do believe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper there is not any transubstantiation, meaning a priest has no power into, into changing the, the, the bread and wine into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. There is not any transubstantiation of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever, and that the invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any other saint and the sacrifice of the Mass, as they are now used in the Church of Rome, are superstitious and idolatrous. And I do solemnly in the presence of God profess, testify, and declare that I do make this declaration, and every part thereof, in the plain and ordinary sense of the words, read unto me, as they are commonly understood by English Protestants, without any evasion, equivocation, or mental reservation. Let me read that again. In the plain and ordinary sense of the words right unto me, as they are commonly understood by English Protestants without any evasion, equivocation, or mental reservation whatsoever and without any dispensation already granted me the Pope, or any other authority or person whatsoever, or without any hope of any such dispensation from any person or authority whatsoever, or without thinking that I am or can be acquitted before God or man, or absolved of this declaration or any part thereof, although the Pope or any other person or persons or power whatsoever should dispense with or annul the same, or declare that it was null and void from the beginning. Mental reservation. Again, bear in mind Daniel 11, 27. And both these king's hearts, think of mindsets again now. Both these king's hearts, king of the north mindset and the king of the south mindset, shall be to do mischief. Behind the scenes, they are collaborating together. And they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. The terms of the document are important for even the extravagant and evolved wording of the long rigmarole at the end added much to the sense of studied insult conveyed by the whole formula. Not only is the mass stigmatized as idolatrous, but a false statement of Catholic doctrine is implied in the reference to the adoration of the Virgin Mary and the saints, as now used in the Church of Rome. While the existence of a supposed dispensing power is assumed, which the Catholic Church has never asserted, what added still more to the just resentment of Catholics at the continued retention of the declaration was the consciousness that in the words of Lingard it owed its origin to the perjuries of an impostor and the delusion of a nation the formula was no one draft was no one drafted by a parliament in its sober senses with the object of excluding Catholics from the throne. The Bill of Rights, after the deposition of James II in 1689, exacted of the monarch a profession of faith or test. The test selected was one which already stood in the statute book and which was first placed there during the frenzy excited by the supposed Popish plot of 1678, gunpowder plot. It was amid the panic created by the fabrication of Titus Oates, and this test was drafted not improbably by himself, and it was imposed upon all officials and public servants, thus effectually excluding Catholics from Parliament and positions of trust. By a curious inversion of history, the Declaration, which was drawn up in 1678 to be taken by every official except the king, had come 200 years later to the exacted of the king and of no one else. Now why was it except the king? Well, there's a very unique history regarding the crown, and that I'm not going to get too much into it. But in simple terms, is the crown is rented by the British monarchy. The British monarchy rents the crown, but who actually owns the crown? the Vatican. It's the Vatican that owns the crown. And England basically rents it from them. And if they step out of line, well, there could be hell to pay. So, I mean, a lot of people like to look at England as this and England as that, you know, and the Rothschilds and these types of things. But when you really look at careful history regarding the crown. The crown is just a rented position, basically. Although statements have been made contending that the substance of the Royal Declaration is older than Titus Oates' time, an examination of these earlier formulas shows little to support such a conclusion. See a full discussion on the tablet, 13th August, 1910. A brief account of of this formula and of the attempts which were made in 1891, and the subsequent years to abolish or modify the Royal Declaration has already been given in the Article oaths. It will be sufficient to cite here the terms of the new Declaration, which was formally carried by Mr. Osquith's government in August 1910, in time to relieve King George V from the necessity of wounding the feelings of his Catholic subjects by a repetition of the old formula in virtue of Mr. Asquith's. Accession Declaration Act. The brief statement, which now replaces that quoted that quoted above, runs as follows I, A, B, C, whatever, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant Protestant, and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments, to secure the Protestant succession to the throne of my realm, uphold and maintain such enactments to the best of my power. Now that you have read the Royal Declaration, what part of the Constitution USA of the of the United States is protesting? Now, also notice in the different wording of the of how the Royal Declaration was now reworded. It was reworded in the sense to include compromise. I am a faithful Protestant And that I will According to the true intent Of the enactments To secure the protestant succession to the throne Of my realm Uphold and maintain Such enactments To the best of my power To the best of my power Which means that Hey well, There might come a time Where I can't do it So what is that? Well that's compromise You cannot serve God and mammon and You can either love the one Or hate the other And again, what part of the Constitution of the United States is protestant? But the reality was, full freedom for Catholics to function in the colonies just could never happen without constant obstructions, so long as they were under England's rule. And what did Protestants gain and what did they lose? Now it was legal. What was illegal in England was a mass. Now we know the rest of the story and what the loyalists suffered. Because the true motive has been erased from history, The real perpetrators go unknown. Now again, I want you to understand that this is being written from a Roman point of view. This comes out of the Catholic Encyclopedia, the English Revolution of 1688. And there are key points highlighted here in black, and also to really hit home some key points here. James II, having reached the climax of his power after the successful suppression of Monmouth's rebellion in 1685, then had the Tory reaction in his favor, complete control over Parliament and the town corporations, a regular army in England, a thoroughly Catholic army in process of formation in Ireland, and a large revenue granted by Parliament for life. His policy was to govern England as absolute monarch and to restore Catholics to their full civil and religious Rights. unfortunately both prudence and statesmanship were lacking with the result that in three years the king lost his throne the history of the revolution resolved itself into a catalog of various ill judged measures which alienated the support of the established church the tory party and the nation as a whole the execution of monmouth july 1685 made the revolution possible for it led to the Whig party accepting William of Orange as a natural champion of Protestantism against the attempts of James. Thus the opposition gained a center round which it consolidated with ever increasing force. What the Catholics as a body desired was freedom of worship and the repeal of the penal laws, but a small section of them desirous of political power aimed chiefly at the repeal of the Test Act of 1673 and the Act of 1678, which, ex- which excluded Catholics from both Houses of Parliament. Unfortunately, James fell under the influence of this section, which was directed by the unprincipled Earl of Sunderland, and he decided on a policy of repeal of the Test Act. Circumstances had caused this question to be closely bound up with that of the Army. James, who placed his chief reliance on his soldiers, had increased the standing army to 30,000, 13,000 of whom partly officered by Catholics, were encamped on Hunslau Heath to the great indignation of London, which regarded the camp as a menace to its liberties and a center of disorder. Parliament demanded that the army should be reduced to normal dimensions and the Catholic officers dismissed. But James, realizing that the test would not be repealed, prorogued the Parliament and proceeded to exercise the dispensing and suspending power. By this, he claimed that it was a prerogative of the Crown to dispense with the execution of the penal laws in individual cases and to suspend the operation of any law altogether. To obtain the sanction of the law, co- law courts for this doctrine, a test case, known as hale's case was brought to decide whether the king could allow a catholic to hold office in the army without complying with the test act after james had replaced some of the judges by more complacent lawyers he obtained a decision that it was of the king's prerogative to dispense with penal laws in particular instances he acted on the decision by appointing catholics to various positions lord Turkano becoming Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Arundel, Lord Privy Seal, and Lord Balasis, Lord Treasurer, in place of the Tory minister, Lord Rochester, who was regarded as the chief mainstay of the established church, Church of England, which was rendered uneasy by the dismissal of Rochester, was further alienated by the king's action in appointing a court of high commission, which suspended the Bishop of London for refusing to inhibit one of his clergy from preaching anti-Catholic sermons. The feeling was intensified by the liberty which Catholics enjoyed in London during 1686. Public chapels were opened, including one in the Royal Palace. The Jesuits founded a large school in the Savoy, and Catholic ecclesiastics appeared openly at court. Now do you see why Henry Granton Guinness was making the retort of how all these universities are starting to grow and manifest in England? Don't you think he might have had an idea of this history, even though this was about 100 years, 100 or so years before his time? I think he knew quite a bit about it, because why would he mention in the beginning of his book of all these institutions coming up, which were basically null and void. They weren't there. Maybe one school here, one school there. But during his day, it grew, and it grew immensely that once was once what was a Protestant country has returned back to Rome. The feeling was intensified by the liberty which Catholics enjoyed in London during sixteen eighty six. Public chapels were opened, including one in the Royal Palace, the Jesuits founded a large school in Savoy, and Catholic ecclesiastics appeared openly at court. At this juncture, James, desiring to counterbalance the loss of Anglican support, offered toleration to the dissenters, who at the beginning of his reign had been severely persecuted. The influence of William Penn induced the king to issue on April 4, 1687, the Declaration of Indulgence, by which liberty of worship was granted to all Catholic and Protestants alike. He also replaced Tory Churchmen by Whig dissenters on the Municipal Corporations and the Commission of the Peace and having dissolved Parliament, hoped to secure a new House of Commons, which would repeal both the penal laws and the test. But he underestimated two difficulties, the hatred of the dissenters for popery and their distrust of royal absolutism. His action in promoting Catholics to the Privy Council, the Judicial Bench, and the offices of Lord Lieutenant Sheriff and magistrate wounded these susceptibilities, while he further offended the Anglicans by attempting to restore to Catholics some of their ancient foundations in the universities. Catholics obtained some footing both at Christ Church and University College, Oxford, and in March 1688. And in March 1688, James gave the presidency of Magdalene College to Bonaventure Gifford, the Catholic vicar apostolic of the Midland District, this restoration of Magdalene as a Catholic college created the greatest alarm, not only among the holders of benefices throughout the country, but also among the owners of the ancient abbey lands. The presence of the papal nuncio, manager Daba at court, and the public position granted to the four Catholic bishops who had recently been appointed as vicar's apostolic served to increase both the dislike of the dissenters to support a king whose acts, while of doubtful legality were also subversive of protestant interests, and likewise the difficulty of the Anglicans in practicing passive obedience in the face of such provocation. Surrounded by these complications, James issued his second, second Declaration of Indulgence in April 1688 in order that it should be read in all the churches. This strained Anglican obedience to the breaking point. The Archbishop of Canterbury, and six of his suffragans presented a petition questioning the dispensing power. The seven bishops were sent to the tower, prosecuted, tried, and acquitted. This trial proved to be immediate, immediate occasion of the revolution, for as Halifax said, it has brought all protestants together and bound them up into a knot that cannot easily be untied. While the bishops were in the tower, another epoch-marking event occurred, the birth of an heir to the crown, June 10, 1688. Hitherto, the hopes of the king's opponents had been fixed on the succession of his Protestant daughter, Mary, wife of William of Orange, the Protestant leader. The birth of Prince James now opened up the prospect of a Catholic dynasty just at a moment when the ancient anti-Catholic bigotry had been aroused by events both in England and France, For besides the ill-advised acts of James, the persecution of the Huguenots by Louis XIV, consequent on the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, revived old religious animosities. England was flooded with French Protestant refugees bearing everywhere the tale of a Catholic king's cruelty. Unfortunately for James, his whole foreign policy had been one of subservience to France. And at this moment of crisis, the power of France was a menace to all Europe. So basically, what was the mindset of this king? Because he still wanted to hold on to Protestant interests, but yet he was opening the door, he was opening the back door. So his mindset was compromised. That's what it was, with these two declarations of indulgence. Even Catholic Austria and Spain supported the threatened Protestant states, and the Pope himself, outraged by Louis XIV and the succession of wrongs, joined the universal resistance to France and was aligned and was allied with William of Orange and other Protestant sovereigns against Louis and his single supporter, James. William had long watched the situation in England and during 1687 had received communications from the opposition in which it was agreed that whenever revolutionary action should become advisable, it should be carried out under William's guidance. As early as the autumn of 1687, the Papal Secretary of State was aware of the plot to dethrone James and make Mary Queen and a French agent dispatched the news to England through France. The Duke of Norfolk, then in Rome, also learned it, and sent intelligence to the king before December 18, 1687, a letter of D'Estre to lavois cited by rank 2, 424. But James, though early informed, was reluctant to believe that his son-in-law would head an insurrection against him. On the day the seven bishops were acquitted, seven English statesmen sent a letter to William inviting him to rescue the religion and liberties of England but William was threatened by a French army on the Belgian frontier and could not take action. Louis XIV made a last effort to save James and warned the Dutch States General that he would regard my attack on England as a declaration of war against France. This was keenly resented by James, who regarded it as a slight upon English independence, and he repudiated the, charges, the charge that he had made a secret treaty with France. Thereupon, Louis left him to his fate removed the French troops from Flanders to begin a campaign against the empire. And thus William was free to move. When it was too late, James realized his danger by hasty concession granted one after another. He tried to undo his work and went back to Tory churchmen to his cause, but he did not remove the Catholic officers or suggest a restriction of the dispensing power. In October Sunderland was dismissed from office, but William was already on the seas. Bear in mind, he did not remove the Catholic officers or suggest restrictions of, of the dispensing power. William was already on the seas, and though driven back by a storm, he reembarked and landed at Tor Bay on November 5, 1688. James at first prepared to resist. The army was sent to intercept William, but by the characteristic treachery of Churchill, disaffection was spread, and the king, not knowing in whom he could place confidence, attempted to escape. At Sheerness, he was stopped and sent back to London, where he might have proved an embarrassing prisoner had not his, has, had not his escape been connived at on December twenty third, sixteen eighty eight. He left England to take refuge with Louis the Fourteenth. The latter received him generously and granted him both palace and pension. On his first departure, the mob had risen in London against the Catholics and attacked chapels and houses, plundering and carrying off the contents. Even the ambassadors' houses were not spared, and the Spanish and Sardinian embassy chapels were destroyed. Bishops Gifford and Laburn were arrested and committed to the tower. Father Petre had escaped, and the nuncio disguised himself as a servant of the house of the envoy from Savoy, till he was enabled to obtain from William a passport. So, as, so far as the English Catholics were concerned, the result of the revolution was that their restoration to freedom of worship and liberation from the penal laws was delayed for a century and more. Here's a little hint. 1776. So, completely had James lost the confidence of the nation that William experienced no opposition and the revolution ran its course in an almost regular way. A convention parliament met on January 22nd, 1689, declared that James having withdrawn himself out of the kingdom had abdicated the government and that the throne was thereby vacant. And that experience had shown it could be inconsistent with the safety and welfare of this Protestant kingdom to be governed by a popish prince. Let me read that again. A convention in Parliament met on January 22nd, 1689, declared that James, having withdrawn himself out of the kingdom, had abdicated the government, and that the throne was thereby vacant and that experience had shown it to be inconsistent with the safety and welfare of this protesting kingdom to be governed by a popish prince. The Crown was offered to William and Mary, who accepted the Declaration of Rights, which laid down the principles of the Constitution with regard to the dispensing power, the liberties of Parliament, and other matters. After their proclamation as king and queen, the declaration was ratified by the Bill of Rights and the work of revolution was complete. English Catholics have indeed had had good cause to lament the failure of the king's well-meant, if unwise, attempts to restore their liberty and to regret that he did not act on the wise advice of Pope Innocent XI and Cardinal Howard to proceed by slow degrees and obtain first a repeal of the penal laws before going on to restore their full civil rights. Remember, Rome always likes to be legal. But on the other hand, we can now realize that the revolution had the advantage of finally closing a long struggle between the king and parliament that had lasted for nearly a century. Here's a clue 1776. And of establishing general principles of religious tolerance in which Catholics were bound sooner or later to be included. i give you a little hint American Revolution. say that out loud <laughs> it's a same reality you know and I you know I'm not trying to make light of it but let's um, see we got to understand is the kingdoms of this world are not we are not to be a part of the kingdoms of this world okay and even the act of protestants you know and taking a stance politically the way they did it was kind of iffy you know cuz you know cuz there was the war or the revolution so obviously there was killing going on okay on both sides you know protestants and you know, Catholics, okay, and regardless, regardless of you know wartime or whatever or persecution, that we have a law that says "Thou shalt not kill." we have a we are commanded by Jesus Christ himself that we are to love our enemy. Do we have to go along with him? No, do we have to agree with him? No. Do we go and kill them because they are removing a portion of documents and stuff like that? Do we have to go to war with them? Are are, are we commanded to go to war with them? No. We are commanded to preach the gospel. We are commanded to preach truth. We are commanded to preach his truth. All the while being in the world, but not being of it. So now nearly a hundred years later, we have the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. What Rome could not accomplish with the Declaration of Indulgence, they accomplished with the Declaration of Independence. But the reality was full freedom for Catholics. Full freedom for Catholics, and yes, he also had all these other cults which were, which is controlled behind the scenes by the Jesuitical order, the Society of Jesus. Um, That's what they call it. Actually, Protestants called them the Jesuits. I don't think they actually called themselves the Jesuits. I'll have to look that into you. That's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. Um, Because when you were labeled as a Jesuit, I do believe that that was an aspect of pointing that that was the enemy. Um, I don't think um, Jesuit priests called themselves Jesuits. They were just part of a society of... Favorite part of the uh, Society of Jesus, I believe, if so I have my history correct on that, I have to look more into that. But I think the word Jesuit was a term that was coined by reformers, Protestants, true born-again Bible-believing Christians. They, okay, so but the reality was full freedom for Catholics to function in the colonies just could never happen without constant obstructions so long as they were under England's rule. England and the colonies were Protestant, Protestant. Now England is Protestant and we have Roman vision. And the birth of the United States of Rome, America, has never been a Protestant government, only during, the, only during the Protestant English colonial years. The only country that was ever Protestant was England. England for over 200 years was the only country in history to throw off the chains of Rome. It was England with the Lamb of God, the Bible, that was the brightest bulb in the Reformation. From 1776 to the present day, the light is getting dimmer. We are returning to the dark ages. We were both duped by Rome. Okay? Now, again, I want, you to, I, I, I want to repeat this. America was never, has never been a Protestant government never was so if america was never a protesting government where do the two horns like a lamb come from surely there were lamb-like principles on this beast the answer lies within the colonial period previous to 1776 and post 1776 Even though the light's getting dim, there are still those out there that are part of those two horns, like a lamb. They're still part of the lamb principles of this beast. But the government spoke as a dragon from the very beginning. Now, let me go ahead. Before I close this out, I'm going to read Revelation 13. up here Give me just a moment kind of create dead air so and, and it's, it's it's this is tough history to chew on because you're not taught this stuff in schools you're not taught this stuff you're not you know it's it's, it's not in any you know which makes it hard to believe you know certain things because oh you're just fine so you believe everything you read on the internet blah 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 you know what I can understand that mindset because those that will say these things they don't know any better because they have not been taught this stuff from their childhood to their college years to married life to being old and gray okay and I, I understand that and understand this is not an attack this is not an attack on the individual okay God didn't say, come out of her, my people, because he knew people weren't going to come out. God said, come out of her, my people, because he knows that there are people in these institutions that belong to him, that will see this light, and that will come out of it. Okay. So this is an attack on individuals, but we are judging the systems of this world, and the systems And the main system is this Antichrist system, which is the papal system, which is the false king of the north. The true king of the north, which is the rock made cut out without human hands, is going to come back someday, and we will be where he is also. So the true king of the north will destroy the false king of the north by the brightness of his coming. So, let's go ahead and read Revelation 13, starting in verse 11. And I beheld another beast. This is after the the wounded beast out of the sea. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. Again, it doesn't say he has two horns like a lamb, and then he spoke as a dragon. It says he has two horns like a lamb, and he spake, speaks as a dragon at the same time. Okay? And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And you know what? The thing is, is again, this is about mindsets here, and okay, this is about your heart. Where is your mind at? Is your mind being programmed to follow suit after things of this world? For therefore, if it is, then you are worshiping the first beast, whose deadly wound is healed. First beast has control secretly behind the scenes. Of everything you see around you through secret societies, through Bilderbergers, through all of this stuff. Masonry, Opus Dei, Club of Rome, Trilateral Commission. They all control it, they are the tip of the pyramid. And he doeth great wonder so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Is this literal fire or or could this be some kind of a spiritual mindset, a spiritual fire? Look at charismania. Look at the charismatic renewal. Look at charismatic Catholics. Look at the speaking in tongues and these types of things and healing and all this. Where does it all come from? Who supports it? He doeth great wonder, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. This is a false fire. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. Question. Where did this wound take place? It took place in the Vatican took place at Rome. Okay. Let me read this again. And to see with them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast could should both speak as what? As a dragon. And cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Okay. Now, Let me read this again. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Who's the he? Beast out of the earth. Image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak. When did this image start to speak? I'll give you a clue. The first two numbers are 17, the last two numbers are 76 that was the conclusion of the American Revolution that's when it started to speak that's when the image of the beast got life and he called us all both small and great rich and poor free and bond and receiving a mark in their right hand or in their forehead so what is being done what America is doing out in the open is what's being controlled by that power, which is doing things behind the scenes. And the one that is coming out of the ashes, so to speak, that are doing things behind the scenes, again, both these kings' hearts are to do the mischief, they speak lies at one table, and the king of the north is jumping seas over here at the end of September. So we're going to see the mindset of the King of the North here in September. Oh, what an interesting time it's going to be. We have September 23rd, we have December 8th, which is the beginning of this so-called year of mercy, Jubilee, starts at December 8th, culminates in November 16th in 2016, I think. So, again, when you look at these two beasts here in Revelation 13, is this talking about a boogeyman, antichrist guy that's going to come in the future? Is this talking about a boogeyman's assistant that is going to resurrect him from the dead after he gets shot in the head? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. We need to stick to the definition of the symbols of prophecy that are before us in the scriptures and the beasts of the kingdom, okay, period. That's what it is, and it's not one single man. I mean, is there going to be one final pope? Obviously, yes, there's going to be one final pope. I mean, I get that. But it's the system. It's that chair. It's that seat. (laughs) The seat of, let's just go ahead and say it's the seat of Jupiter. You we know, had Peter in Rome. you know. That's the statue of Jupiter. So the seat of Jupiter, seat of Peter, seat of Simon Magus, seat of the Nicolaitans, paid to And yes, there is going to be one final pope. I get that. Who's that going to be? Is it going to be Francis? I don't know. It is kind of interesting that he keeps on saying he has a short time, which he's echoing the very mindset of, of Of the dragon is the dragon knows he has but a short time, so I don't know. I mean, he could be it, but again, we'll have to wait and see. But there are some interesting things coming on this, coming on the horizon. And uh, I think, first and foremost, our eyes need to be focused on the gospel. Our eyes need to be focused on Jesus Christ and His commandments and His obedience to Him. I'm talking about all ten of them. love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So the first commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first four laws hang on that law, including the seventh day. The second table of law, love your neighbor as yourself. And what hangs on that law? is the second table of the law, the sixth sixth of the commandments. All those two commandments do is explain the whole ten. So again, what we need to do, we need to be focused on the gospel, we need to be focused on our obedience to Jesus Christ because a lot of people want to accept him as savior, but they do not want to accept him as king. And a king is worthy of his obedience. Our kingdom is not in this world. Again, I know this has probably been a you know, for those that'll listen to this later on, I know this has probably been a <laughs> kind of a unique twist in history, but this is just stuff that's been left out, folks. This is stuff that's never mentioned, it's not talked about. I think the, I think a couple of uh documentaries I mean you do I think you do want to check out mainly is the Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. I think that's a good one. Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings. Doesn't they don't really come out and say it, but you can put the pieces together, follow the symbolism and stuff like that and where it leads. And realize who's in control of these secret societies behind the scenes. Again, what happened with this Age of Reason, with this Enlightenment era, with the overthrow of the papal states, was really a setup in order to swing the pendulum one way, turn this freedom into chaos, which will eventually lead the mindset away from this freedom of of equality, and cause the pendulum to swing the other way. And this was all done by design. By two kings, king of the north, king of the south, Okay, and both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. They shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time of point. So this is all I have for you this evening. Until next time, truth be told, truth be known, stay safe. God bless. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.